Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Frank Pizor. So without further ado, here he is. Good morning, Harvest. I'd like to welcome you to our April 18th online service. I uh, wish I could say good to see you, but since I can't see you and you can only see me, hopefully it's still a good day for you to start. Last week I talked about the priority of worship. And this week I want to talk about the cost of worship from Luke chapter 14. Let's start with a question. Do you struggle watching our online service? Do you struggle watching our online service? I don't know if you're like me at all, but I absolutely struggle watching the online service. To me, it feels like I'm watching TV or I'm watching YouTube or or something on my computer. And then if I'm sitting on my couch, which makes it a little bit too relaxing, or if I'm sitting in the kitchen and watching, which isn't as relaxing, I'm still very distracted. I might look around the house and see, hey, you know, maybe there's a couple of dishes I should be doing, or maybe I should straighten up that. And to actually say that I'm focused in worship, especially with our online service, it just, it's not happening. It's not happening. So to me, I don't really enjoy our online service as much as I probably should, and maybe I shouldn't even be saying that, but just in being honest, I can find it to be a very distracting hour. Second question, do you struggle with returning to in-person worship service? Now, I don't struggle with that as much as I do with the online service, but some of you might. I mean, the reality is I don't struggle with in-person service because it's a part of what I get paid to do here at Harvest to be at services, to be at worship. So to me, it's not a struggle. It's not something that I sit and go, oh, I have to go. Um, But to me, it's something that I go to many times because I want to worship, but there are times when I do it just because it's my job. Now, when I think about our online service in contrast to our in-person service, I think of the huge differences that actually exist. When I think about our online service, I think about the convenience. You know, what a convenient thing it is. You can sleep in, have breakfast, read the paper, do a couple things, and then around 9.50 or so, even if you're still in your pajamas, and I'm sure many of you have seen the online service in pajamas, confession, I have as well, and uh, you can sit down and just kind of watch. But you really can't do that in person. It would be a little embarrassing, first of all, if you showed up in your pajamas, but it's, it's just a difference. There is a convenience about being at home and, and watching the inline service. Online, not inline, because inline is skating. There's a convenience to our online service. Uh, just think about it. Again, it's just waking up and going, but it's also almost like an hour, a little more than an hour sometimes. But when you think about our in-person service, the service will probably be longer, maybe 90 minutes or so. But then you have to think about, wow, wait a minute, I have to drive there maybe 20 to 30 minutes. Hang out with people afterwards, hopefully, which is what you want to do, and then head home for another 20 or 30 minutes. Where our online service, extremely convenient, sit down, watch for an hour, and then do what you have to do. In fact, uh, if you're a Bears fan or a football fan, you can have plenty of time to eat lunch before you even start to watch a football game. And yet, with our in-person service, it's a longer service, there's travel involved, you actually have to shower, dress, get ready, hang out with people. So what is once a convenient one-hour service has now become a longer 
three-hour service. And so there's this huge difference, almost like there's a little bit of a cost attached to an in-person service when you come to the in-person service. So to me, struggling with online, not necessarily struggling with in-person, and yet knowing that there's a lot more that's involved in getting ready and actually attending an in-person service. I want us to take a glimpse of what it means about the cost of worship. Now, originally I'd planned to speak on the cost of worship using David's words found in First or Second Samuel 24, where he says, I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. And I wanted to focus on that. But the story was such a mess, and uh, there were so many things that are involved. To actually preach on that would take more than a week without trying to hurry and get through it. Now, as we begin to think about returning to full church participation, and as I have personally settled in place in my heart to my shame, I need to be reminded that there is a cost in following and worshiping Jesus. So with that in mind, I want us to turn to Luke chapter 14. And I'm going to read a verse at a time, sometimes a little bit more than that. But I just want us to see what the actual cost of following Jesus is what the actual cost is of actually worshiping him. Luke chapter 14, verse 25, reads this way. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them. Here's the context, because context is always important. Jesus is heading to Jerusalem for the final showdown. And yet, there are still large crowds that are following. Huge crowds, noticeable crowds that are following him as he gets ready to journey to Jerusalem die on a cross, to be buried, and then ultimately to be raised. So in the midst of this, Jesus turns to the crowds, and he's going to speak to them. And what he spoke to them was some very strong language. Jesus was very, very, I will say, adamant in the words that he was saying. Now, I want us to understand that when Jesus turns to the large crowds, that Jesus is not fooled by their show of support. And I don't necessarily mean this in a bad way. What I'm trying to say is the large crowds were following Jesus for a reason, probably a a variety of reasons. I imagine some people were following him because of the great things that he had done. Like if you had leprosy and Jesus had healed you of the leprosy, you were blind and then he made you see. Whatever it is that Jesus had done for you, you probably had that sense of affection for him. You know, he has done something for me and I will follow him. And I also have to imagine that there were some people that were probably following him with the hope of a great thing that he was actually going to do when he got to Jerusalem. In other words, if he's the Messiah, if he's the coming king, we're going with him to Jerusalem because when this revolution happens and he kicks out the Romans, we want to be there. So I have to imagine there is a part of this crowd that really isn't there to simply be with Jesus. They're there to get something from him. Now, I don't know about you, But I can actually see myself in that crowd. I can actually see me as someone who is following Jesus because he's done something for me and I'm really appreciative. Or thinking, wow, this is going to be great. I'm going to be a part of something bigger than myself. And I'm going to help liberate, bring freedom to people. And so when I examine my heart motives, sometimes when I follow Jesus, especially if I'm part of a large crowd, it's not necessarily because of I'm following Jesus but it's because I've received something from him, which isn't necessarily a bad motive, or I want to get something. And again, unfortunately, more often than not, because I want to get something from him. 
So Jesus speaks some very strong words to these large crowds that are following him in order that the people will understand what it really means to actually follow him. Verse 26 reads this way, Luke chapter 14. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's some pretty strong language. And to really understand what Jesus is saying, we have to understand what Jesus is actually saying with his strong language. Now, what this doesn't mean when Jesus says you must hate all of these people, he doesn't want us to take it literally. In other words, in our English language, when we see the word hate, we think of something that we are are really opposed to because it is so offensive to us. Kind of like in a sense, if you looked at our well, not kind of. Actually, when you look at our political uh, situation in the United States today, there's a lot of hatred on both sides of the aisle because we are uh, angry, uh, we despise, we don't respect, we don't listen to all a whole bunch of things about how we feel about the other side and how they are part of an evil empire and how they're preparing for tyranny, left or right. And there's this hatred. There. So that's when you hear the word hate, that's what people think of. Oh, man, you're just really, I just despise. I'm disgusted uh, with these people. But that's not what Jesus means because the interesting thing about Jesus when he says that, this is the same Jesus who gives us the two great commandments, which are love God and love others as yourself. It's the same Jesus who turns to his disciples and says, love one another just as I have loved you. Loving one another sacrificially, giving your all. In other words, what Jesus would say, love your family, love your family, give your all, sacrifice all that you can to love your family. This is the same Jesus. So when he says hate, he doesn't mean for us to take it literally, and I'll put a little balloon there in our English language, but he wants us to take it literally in an Aramaic language. So what do I mean? In Aramaic, actually, what this word hate means is to see your family When it comes to importance, who's more important? Jesus or family, you're to see your family as a distant second to your love for Jesus. In other words, you can and should love your family. Jesus is not saying hate your family literally in our English language, even though he's saying it literally in Aramaic, but he's saying it in a way that you're to love. Your love for your family is so distant from your love for Jesus. And when I think about my family, I just can't imagine not loving my family. I mean, many a morning I wake up and I think, wow, I am so glad that I am a part of this family. I get to be a part of uh, my wife's life. I get to be a part of my children's lives. That just brings joy to me, and I find my love growing. And so if I took the words of Jesus and had to hate that, I think it would mix his message up. Really what I think Jesus is saying, and again, I'm repeating myself, is that when it comes to me, I'm first and your family is a distant second. Now, I kind of think of it this way. Uh, how many of you like White Castle hamburgers? Now, I imagine some of you are out there like, oh, White Castles, they're disgusting. I grew up in some ways, not like my mom fed me White Castle hamburgers, but in my neighborhood, White Castle was like a, an awesome place to go. Sliders, they were great, man. They call them sliders because they slide right in and they slide right out kind of thing. They were just yummy. I still like White Castle hamburgers. But if you came to me and said, listen, bro, Uh, I'm going to give you some white 
Castle hamburgers, or I'm going to give you something like a Portillo's hamburger, which is a step up, or a really good steak uh, hamburger. Um, my love for Portillo's, when I look at White Castle's, there's a huge gap. There's a great distance there where if you offer me the White Castle's versus the Portillo's, it's not even a choice. And, and I think that's what Jesus is saying. It's not even a choice. When, when you look at me versus family, you're like, I love my family, but I'm all here. Well, let me give a serious example. When I first gave my life to Christ way back in 83, I was at a place called Lewis University in Joliet studying social justice, and uh, I became a follower of Jesus at the end of my freshman year in college. And in light of all of that, I, I met someone who encouraged me to go to Moody Bible Institute. Now, my upbringing is in another denomination, and when I told my family that I was leaving school, you know, because when you're leaving the school uh, to get a real job and you're going to another school for religious reasons, it sounds a little weird. And as weird as it was, I still needed to make a choice. Am I going to follow my family and do what they told me to do? Or am I going to follow Jesus and listen to what he told me would do, which was to go to Moody, which eventually led me into ministry? That's the kind of thing that Jesus is seriously talking about. When God is calling you to do something, when Jesus says, do this, and your family says, nah, that sounds kind of weird, or that's strange, or whatever, it's when Jesus says, listen, you got to learn how to hate your family. Make them a distant second. And put me first. And put me first. See, to me, when I look at that, it's difficult. It's difficult. It's very hard for us to do. Let's look at verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, what does it mean to follow Jesus? In order to follow Jesus, we need to hate our family and we need to carry our cross. In other words, we need to die. We need to die to ourselves, our desires, our dreams, our whatever. We need to die to our bitterness and our obsession with fairness. We need to die to everything. That's not the kind of life that you call people to, in a sense. Um, it's not something that you say, hey, you know what, I, I'm bored. I think I'd like to be called to die. That's just great. Um, really what it's saying is, this is very difficult. This is very strong language that Jesus is using, but he's using it so plainly. Because what he's saying is, is listen, if you want to come after me, if you want to follow me, if you want to prioritize worship, you must die. You must die to yourself. You must die to your, to your desires, your dreams. Whatever it is, you must die to that. And that's some very strong language. Now again, I don't know if you're like me, but I struggle with self. And when I say I struggle with self, what I'm saying is there's so much self of me involved in so much what I do that I'm always struggling between what I want to do and what I know what God wants me to do. Uh, the, the reason I don't like preaching, especially over the last two weeks, that as, if I, as I have had to look at myself, look in my heart, and really examine my heart, I always come back to much of my motivation is self. I want to do things my way. I want to do things my way so much that it's a real struggle to do it the way that Jesus wants me 
to do it. I mean, Jesus says it so plainly. You must deny yourself. You must deny your love for your family. You must deny uh, yourself. And he says this twice then ultimately. If you don't do these things, you cannot be my disciple. When Jesus says that, what he's saying is this is an important and essential uh, truth. Self-denial is not incidental to following Jesus. It's essential, not incidental, but essential. In other words, if you want to follow Jesus, you can't just kind of decide to deny. You can't just decide to die to yourself every once in a while. You have to be all in. It's essential. It's foundational. It's important. So when Jesus turns to the large crowds and he says to them, listen, hate your family. Take up this cross and die to yourself. This is essential. This is serious. This is strong language. You have a choice to make. You can live for yourself or you can live for me. If you live for yourself, you cannot be my disciple. No ifs, no ands, no buts, no gray areas, no shades of anything. Just straight up, this is the simple, plain language that I want you to understand. This is the cost that you will actually face when you want to follow me, when you want to worship me. You must give up everything in order to come after me. Now, Jesus then illustrates this through two little short stories or illustrations. Let's look at verse 28. It says this, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. I'm not a businessman, so this doesn't really resonate with me as much. But can you imagine having all of this money you buy this land, you start to build up, you lay a foundation for a building, and then you realize, oh no, I don't have enough money to finish this project. I can't do it. So maybe the people who drive by don't really recognize it, but some of them kind of think like, what's going on here? Why is anything building? Maybe somebody failed. But the people who really know you will go, man, dude, what's up with that? You try to do something and you fail. This is kind of embarrassing. So what Jesus is saying here is, is listen, if you're going to build something, you got to know what the cost is. And you not only have to know what the cost is, you have to know that you're able to meet that cost and, and, and go beyond that in a sense, but meet that cost in order to finish. You don't just do this for the fun of it. You don't spend a billion dollars and go, well, all I did was build a foundation. It's difficult. But look at verses 31 and 32. And again, I'm not a military man, just like a businessman. But this is what Jesus says. He says, or what king going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, will the other, while he is a yet a great, a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. It's a, it's a simple illustration. If you're someone who is a king or a president or a prime minister, when you're about to go to war, you kind of look at who you're fighting against. And if you think to yourself, well, listen, uh, we, we are, I'll say, like a small nation and uh, we're headed against one of the world's superpowers, you don't kind of sit there and, and go, ah, you know, can we do this? You know, you count the cost. 
We cannot defeat the military might of this nation. It would almost be in modern day parlance if we looked that if Russia decides, you know what, let's invade Ukraine and let's bring back what was once ours. I don't think the, U the Ukrainians might say, oh yeah, let's fight. But the reality is why? You're going to get crushed. And the devastation will be too great. Why not just say, forget it? And that's kind of what Jesus is saying. I look at it this way in a human sense. When I look at it myself, and maybe this is just for certain people in our congregation, but do you ever walk into a room and you check out the guys? You, you kind of look at them and say, hey, if I got into a fight with him, could I take him? If I got a fight with him, am I the only person? I might be the only person who does that. I, I, I can't seem to not enter a room and not do that and have that enter into my mind. And if there's a guy that's bigger than me and he can pound lumps on me, I think of all of the excuses or reasons for how I would get out of it. I mean, I would say something like, oh, you know, man, like my wife just died and I'm sad and I'm so sorry. I'm not really thinking because I'm counting the cost. Can I take this guy? I cannot. I better have a plan just in case he wants to fight me. If I look at some guy that's a lot smaller than me, I think of how much fun it might be. And again, I'm telling you, this is how selfish I can be, how much fun it might be to actually dominate and be powerful. Absolutely wrong. Absolutely wrong and bad attitude. But that's the idea of what Jesus is trying to say. You count the cost. Think about what it's actually going to cost you if you're going to go to war. Think about what it's actually going to cost you if you're going to build this building. And ultimately, to get the people to see, think about what it is actually going to cost you to follow Jesus. It's fun to follow Jesus and get something from him, but his call is not to follow him to get something from him. His call is to simply follow him and recognize that it's going to cost us something. But look at verse 33. Here again, Jesus, speaking some very strong language, says, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Again, Jesus paints a black and white picture, and he comes out with some very strong illustration after after these two illustrations, which give a kind of like a punch and go, oh, I get it now, I understand. Uh, he comes and he, he says, we need to give up everything or we cannot be his disciple. Simple and clear. Again, not any gray areas. He says, you must renounce everything. Relationships, family, desires, yourself, your life, your possessions, your everything in order to follow me. And remember this, this is, this is really crucial for us to understand. The cost of salvation is free. Jesus has taken care of all of it, but it will cost you everything. That's what Jesus is saying. Listen, if you're going to follow me, I think it's cool. I, I want people to follow me. I want everyone to follow me. When Jesus is speaking this strong language and he's using strong terms after strong terms, He's not doing it to scare people off. He's preparing them. He's preparing their hearts to embrace what the cost of worship, what the cost of following him actually is. It's everything. Now let's look at verses 34 and 35. Jesus says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has an ear, let him hear. Now, in the days of Jesus, salt had great value. I mean, it has great value today. If you've ever gone somewhere, like sometimes when you go to a wedding and they give you that steak and it's really like not really tasty, it's sort of dry. Salt is really good. I prefer A1, but salt, salt is helpful. 
But in Jesus' time, salt was used as a currency or as a preservative. Like today we have refrigerators. Back then they used salt. But if salt lost its saltiness, it became useless. There, there, was nothing, there was nothing for it. So Jesus, again, is using this strong language. Could you imagine someone just saying, everything that you've just done is useless? How discouraging, how deflating, how defeating that would be to know that you've done so much and yet it's useless. So Jesus is using this strong language because he wants the people to see that you must renounce everything or just the fact that you say that you follow Jesus, it's but useless. It's useless. Useless. It's not worth it. And he says, he who has an ear, let him hear this strong language. Understand that, what again, when I'm telling you this, to ultimately worship me, to ultimately follow me, you must obey this simple thing. Renounce everything. Lose everything. That's the cost of worship. It's a high cost. It's a very high cost. It's a difficult cost. It's something that is hard for us to actually accept. Let me finish with this. What does this passage mean for us in connection with worship? And I think you've probably already seen it. But what does it mean even as we come to the end of this season of COVID, hopefully, and we return to normal or to a new normal? Last week, I used this definition of worship to describe our need to return to the priority of worship. It's a very simple one. Acknowledging the person and the presence of God and responding with praise, thanksgiving, and obedience. You know, as we come out of this season, of this settle in place, uh, we need to return to the priority of worship. And in order to do that, we must acknowledge the cost of worship as well. In this passage, Jesus used some very strong language. Three times he said, do this or you cannot be my disciple. He said, hate your family or you cannot be my disciple. Deny yourself or you cannot be uh, my disciple. Renounce everything or you cannot be my disciple. In other words, Jesus using this strong language is pretty clear. In order to follow me, imitate me, worship me, you must make worship a priority and obedience, which will cost you essential. Let me finish with two challenges as we come out of this COVID season. First challenge is this. I challenge you to wisely return to corporate worship, especially since we'll be outside as much as possible. Pray for great weather every Sunday so that we can be outside. But I want to invite you to come to in-person worship. We're outside. Now, again, I say wisely because there are some people when you deal with vaccinations, other people who have older members who could get sick and have a really difficult time with COVID. So I'm saying, please, wisely return, but really consider and actually doing something. It will cost. Mind you, as I mentioned earlier, it's really nice and convenient to worship at home. It's that one-hour TV show and boom, now you have the rest of the day to yourself, kind of, but not really. If you we would take good worship as to what it's supposed to be but wisely return and let us join as a corporate body, a family in Christ, the body of Christ to worship together. That's going to cost us something. But I still want to challenge you. Go beyond that cost and actually gather with everyone else and enter into worship as a corporate body. And the second thing, which I think is a greater challenge, is this. I want to challenge you to a renewed sense of surrender to worship as a lifestyle. 
I'm not, the challenge, my first challenge is to return to a worship service. My second challenge is a return to worship as a lifestyle. You see, you can still come to in-person service and not really have worshiped God. Yes, as we mentioned last week, you can acknowledge his person, you could acknowledge his presence, you could give praise, you could give thanksgiving, but if you leave without obedience, you truly haven't worshiped. But sometimes we limit our worship just to that worship service. And if we're not really entering into worship there, it's going to be even harder for us to enter into worship as a lifestyle. The call of Jesus here is for us to enter into worship as a lifestyle. Jesus doesn't say, take up your cross, deny yourself, even hate your family on Sunday from 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. And then after that, you're free to do whatever you want to do. Jesus called to worship. The priority of worship is a lifestyle of worship. As Paul mentions in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, he says, be a living sacrifice. You know, a living sacrifice has to actually get up on the altar, take up their cross, and deny themselves, ultimately to die to ourselves. And so what I want to challenge us is, as we look at the definition that I've given two weeks in a row, is to memorize that. Not like memorizing it in comparison to worship, but to memorize it in such a way that wherever you go, wherever you're standing, you can actually enter into a lifestyle of worship. You can actually be in a grocery store line and acknowledge the fact that God is there, acknowledging who he is, giving thanks, giving praise. And then when God speaks to you, which may be just give me thanks and praise at the moment, but if God speaks to you and asks you to do something wherever you are, you can enter into worship. You can make it a priority. You can make it a lifestyle. I'm going to encourage you when you get into that argument at home, whether it's with your children or with your spouse or with a friend or with a parent, that you can actually enter into worship to acknowledge the person and presence of God, to give thanks and praise, not for the argument, because I don't think that's something to be praising God for, but to actually stop and think, what does God want me to do? Does God want me to forgive? Does God want me to put aside my views of fairness? Does God want me to put aside some bad attitude that I have in the midst of this? And you can enter into worship even in the midst of an argument when you obey God. It's going to cost because an argument that you think that you should be winning or forgiveness that you should give but have not given, it's going to cost you something. And yet the priority of worship says we can have Jesus. Mind you, it's not easy. It's very difficult. I want to be a testimony of how difficult it is to just say, wow, I'm going to worship you, Jesus, right now in this moment when my emotions are raging, when I'm struggling inside of my mind with thoughts that I shouldn't be struggling with, that should be long gone but haven't changed. When I struggle through all that, the call of Jesus is enter into worship. Take up your cross. Deny yourself. Die. Follow me. You will lose everything. It's going to cost you everything, but I'm going to give you something more than that everything in the end. I give you me. That's the heart of Jesus. His desire for us to make worship a priority in our lives, understanding the cost. And it's at that moment when we obey the commands that Jesus says, now my father will reveal himself to you. We enter into worship. We give him the thanks and praise. We acknowledge his worthiness. And our obedience 
opens up many doors of grace and mercy, and we get to experience Jesus. That's why worship is a priority. But to get there, we need to understand the cost. Let's pray. Father, I pray for our church that as we emerge from this season of life and all the struggles that we have gone through, when I hear these words, I pray for our church not to shudder in fear, although that might be a possible response, but more than anything else, if I understand Jesus, to embrace this call, to embrace this cost, to recognize that what do we really have to lose? The things of this world? And what do we really have to gain? It's you. So I pray for our church. May we make priority, may we make worship not only a priority, but a lifestyle. Wherever we are at, whatever we are doing, may we turn to you, honor you, and obey you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me close with these words, a word of blessing. I pray that the Holy Spirit will stir your heart, that you will embrace the cost of following Jesus, the cost of worship, that you will not run, that you will not flee, but that you will stop and let God wrap his arms around you and draw you to himself. Embrace the cost of discipleship. Obey Jesus in all things. Renounce everything and find life. Easy? Nah. Difficult? Totally. Worth it? Absolutely. Amen. Have a good week. Lord bless you and keep you. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.